All right. Well, thank you, uh, Mandy. Thank you, Chris. Uh, as Chris said, we're going to be in Revelation. Uh, every year we do, a, uh, we do kind of a springtime series, usually through a particular book. And then in the summer, we do something a little different. And so this, uh, for the next couple of months anyway, we're going to look at these churches uh, in Revelation chapters 2 and chapter 3. Or chapters 2 and 3. So uh, turn with me to Revelation 2. We're going to look at this church in Ephesus uh, this morning, just these first seven verses. Brian Larson uh, wrote a book about uh, marriage a while back, and he, in the book, he chronicled the, the way that a cold progresses over the seven, first seven years of marriage. Now, if you're married, see if you can relate to this. Uh, if you're not married, well, hopefully this won't be true of your marriage, but here we go. Seven stages of a cold in marriage. The first year, the husband says, Oh, honey, I'm worried about my little baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle. I want to to put you in the best hospital money can buy for a complete checkup. And I know the food is lousy, but I've arranged for your meals to be sent up from the finest restaurant in town. It's all taken care of. In the second year, listen, honey, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called the doctor and he's going to rush right over. Now, will you go to bed and just rest, please? In the third year, maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest if you're feeling bad. I'll bring you something to eat. Have we got any soup uh, in the kitchen? In the fourth year, look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids and washed the dishes, you'd better go rest in bed. In the fifth year, why don't you just take a couple of aspirin? In the sixth year, if you just gargle or something instead of sitting there barking like a seal. And in the seventh year, for heaven's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Well, hopefully that's not true of, of your marriage. Uh, it's a funny story, but it kind of represents a reality uh, that over time, passion erodes. Over time, passion erodes. You know, the second law of thermodynamics that things break down over time. Affections wane and we, we kind of drift away from what once stirred our hearts, right? So again, to take the example of marriage, marriage begins with kind of a laser focus on someone else. But then over time, gravity just kind of pulls that focus back in on yourself. And so attention and affection can drift over time to, or from others to ourselves. And it happens in every part of life. It happens in relationships. It happens in jobs. Uh, it happens in churches. It happens in, in marriages. It happens spiritually, too, in our individual walks with the Lord. I mean, how many of you have ever felt that your affection for Jesus wasn't quite what it used to be? Maybe you entered into lockdown this uh, 15 months ago. Maybe you entered into lockdown with these great plans about how you were going to get closer to Jesus and re revive your walk with, with Jesus. And those, those plans kind of fizzle over time, don't they? 
Or, or maybe you started lockdown and you thought, man, it's so disappointing that we can't meet together as a church. And then over time, you started thinking, well, you know what? It sure is kind of neat to be able to watch church in our pajamas, right? It, it, it wanes. Our passion drifts over time. Like a fire that has lost its heat over the course of a night. And you wake up one day and you have this kind of smoldering mass where once you had this roaring flame. We drift. It's part of who we are. It's part of how we live our lives over time. Uh, well, these seven letters are written to these particular churches in Asia Minor. And they're written kind of like the prophets were written. They're kind of like oracles they're, they're, they're written to these specific churches in Asia Minor, but they're meant to be for everyone. They're assembled here as useful for everyone uh, in these churches as well as for us. And they all follow a similar pattern, and you'll see it as we go through uh, these different weeks. They all follow this similar pattern. They begin with a statement about who Jesus is. And then for, for most, there's a commendation. And then there's a problem. Uh, and then we end with this promise for those who overcome uh, in the end. And so here in our verses today, Jesus, speaking as God himself, is aware about what is going on in this church. He cares for them. Uh, and he is not only aware, but he is sovereign. He is in control. He holds them in their hands. So look at verse, just look at verse 1. To the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He's in control. And he's sovereign over what is going on. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's aware of what they are enduring because he is walking among them. He cares for them as evidenced by his walking with them. Now arguably the, the, the most important city of Asia Minor was Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, and it sits right on a, a, a prominent river coming into the Aegean Sea. It was an incredibly important city uh, in John's day. Uh, there's uh, certainly important, important politically. Uh, it was part of the Roman Empire, but it was a free city, which meant it governed itself. It's, it's incredibly important economically as three different trade routes converge uh, on the city, uh, it's right there at the heart, the, the harbor and the Grand Avenue. You can still see it today, the Grand Avenue, uh, where all of this commerce took place. It was incredibly important. And it's important religiously in the Roman Empire. Remember, in the Roman Empire, uh, you worshipped the emperor. They didn't care who else you worshipped, but you had to worship the emperor. And one of the centers in Asia Minor for the imperial worship was Ephesus. It was an incredibly important city. But far and away, the, the, the most influential thing about Ephesus was the temple uh, to the fertility goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. The, the temple itself, I don't know if you're watching the Euros, the, the temple itself was as big as a soccer pitch. It was enormous. There were thousands of priests and priestesses that worked within this temple. The, 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 the offerings that came in through the temple were one of the primary sources of wealth 
in the city of Ephesus. And it was an incredibly perverse place. An incredibly perverse place. If you know your Bibles, in Acts chapter 19, there's actually a riot uh, in the city. There's three quarters of a million people that live in Ephesus. And in Acts 19, there's a riot, a citywide riot, when the Apostle Paul comes through sharing the gospel because of the threat that these people associated with the temple of Artemis felt from the gospel. There's a whole riot, and Paul's got to kind of escape uh, the city. It's an incredibly influential and important place. And yet, there's a church there. Uh, there's a church there, a thriving uh, church. Anyway, this letter, though, that, that, that we see here in Revelation 2 is not just for this church. Again, if you look down in verse 7, and you see this throughout the letters, uh, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear. And I don't know about you, but I've got two ears, so it's for me, right? And it's for you, it's for us to hear what the Spirit is going to say to us through these words. And so as we go through this, we have to ask ourselves, we have to examine our hearts, and we have to ask ourselves, okay, is this us? Is it possible that we have drifted, whether individually or as a church? Is it possible that we have drifted from that passionate love for Christ? Or, or sorry, if so, then what do we do about it? What do we do about it based on what we see here? Well, this letter, as most of the letters do, uh, this letter begins with a commendation. Jesus is going is to praise them for something that is good about them. Uh, he's going to commend their commitment to orthodoxy, their, their commitment to truth and to the gospel. So whatever else we see in these words, they rightly understood the truth and they understood that the truth mattered. All right, look at verses two and three. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake, bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. If you skip down to verse six, yet this uh, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That there's a commendation here. They have toiled and they have endured in gospel truth in spite of cultural opposition. You know, Jesus says that, that you have not tolerated uh, these false prophets, those who call themselves apostles. Uh, he, he says you have tested them and found them to be false. It isn't necessarily that these guys were being persecuted overtly, but that the current around them, the current of the culture around them, was tempting them to, to kind of retreat back from the truth, to abandon their commitment that they had in the beginning. Their commitment, though, to the truth, while it could have waned, it didn't. Again, look at verse 3. Just look at, look at the, the verbs. You are enduring patiently. You are bearing up. You have not grown weary. And we know from history 
that this church did prevail. It, it did make it through this period. Ignatius, the church father in the second century, wrote uh, about this church and their faithfulness. So we know that they had endured. They had gone through these things and they had remained faithful to the truth. Again, specifically, uh, Jesus points out that they tested false prophets, these that had come in and claimed authority, that they had confronted this group called the Nicolaitans, and we don't know much about them, but it, it seems like they were a group that was known for their idolatry and their immorality, that they had kind of clothed in orthodoxy. So they, they, were, they were doing things that were immoral and idolatrous, but then calling them good, calling them good. And the church didn't fall for it. They stood firm. They endured. They tested them and found them to be false. And incidentally, just make a note uh, in verse 6. Make a note here. This you have, you hate. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice he doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That's an important distinction. Just underline that, make a note of that. But there's no shortage of good activity here among this church. There's no shortage of, of orthodoxy. They are right about an awful lot of things. They are committed to the truth. Uh, they are diligent, hardworking, they're faithful, they're orthodox. So what's the problem? Verse 4 begins with, but. Why is there a but? These guys are doing everything that they're supposed to do. What is the, the issue? Well, Jesus says something's missing. Well, whatever they were doing, whatever commitment they had, they were acting out of a sense of duty and not love. Their love, Jesus will tell them, had grown cold. So they got top marks for, for orthodoxy. They got top marks for doctrinal commitment. But their affection had waned. It had drifted. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, so we rightly ask, okay, well, what is the love here that Jesus has in mind? Well, we have about four options. It could be that their love for God had drifted. It could mean that their love for one another had waned or drifted. It could mean their love for the lost around them had drifted. Or it could be some combination of all of those. Uh, there's certainly, though, uh, Jesus has in mind a, a pattern of living, so a love that results in action. Because when he, when, when he goes to tell them how to uh, recover from this abandonment of love, he tells them to do the things that they did at first. So whatever love it is, it has an outworking in their lives, a practical outworking. It's not just an emotional feeling. It leads to some kind of action. So I think the best answer here is some kind of knock-on combination of each of those things, beginning with a love for God that they had lost. That then, so, so the, the point, I think, for Jesus is that the love they had in the beginning after they were converted, the love that they had in which Christ was the, the first object of affection had been replaced 
by a cold orthodoxy, a mechanical drive to just be right theologically, let's say. Like a marriage that has decayed from a passionate love to just a kind of a relationship between a butler and a maid, you know. Their love, the love that they had at the beginning, the, the center place that Christ held in their hearts had drifted. They had lost the heat of the love that they had at the beginning. And as a result of that, they had lost the resultant concern and love that they had for one another. Because we know that our love for Christ overflows to love for each other. And then, as a result of that, they had lost this zeal to be a light to the world around them. Greg Beale, a commentator, he says, The idea is that they no longer expressed their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to Him in the world. See, it's all connected. So John writes earlier in his epistle in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. That love for God, you can't say I have this love for God and yet I hate my brother or sister. In, in 1 John 4, verse 20, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And later, or, or previously then in Matthew, remember the, the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what they had lost. It's all connected. And notice in verse 5 that uh, the, the image of a lampstand as a shining light to the world, a shining picture to the world of the love of God in the gospel is, is threatened to be removed if they don't recover that love. I mean, again, what is a local church? A, a local church is simply a compelling living out of the gospel, of gospel love within a particular local community. And they, were, they had lost that passionate love. So here's what Jesus seems to be saying here in these verses. That heat and light must accompany right. Heat and light accompany right. Now let's be clear about something. Being right isn't wrong. It's not wrong to be right. Truth really does matter. And Jesus agrees with that. Remember, he has commended their orthodoxy. And it's a real commendation. In other words, it's not like, you know, we sometimes say, okay, for every negative thing that you say, you need to have one positive thing, right? And so Jesus is like, well, I don't know what to say, so I'll just say this. No, it's a real commendation. They understood that the truth of the gospel mattered. And their commitment to the gospel, as delivered by the apostles, is applauded by Jesus. It was good. Truth matters. I think about World War II and Nazi Germany. Hitler had heat. He was passionate about Germany. Hitler had light in that that passion worked itself out into action, didn't it? But Hitler was wrong. He didn't have truth. 
See, truth matters, all right? So, so we got to be clear about that, that truth matters. We need truth. But what Jesus is saying is that right, that orthodoxy, that doesn't spill over into heat, that is love, and that doesn't result in light, that is witness, misses the mark. Let me say that again. What Jesus is saying is that that orthodoxy, that truth, that right, that doesn't spill over into love and heat, and that doesn't result in light and witness, misses the mark. In terms of removing the lampstand, what he says in verse 5, remember from where you fall and repent. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In terms of removing the lampstand, it, it makes us worthless in achieving our divine purpose as a church. Remember when Jesus talks about being salt and he talks about being light in Matthew chapter 5. You were the light of the world. A, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. If we lose that sense of love, that heat, and that light, it makes us worthless in achieving our very purpose as a church in shining out the light of the gospel. We may as well close the doors because it doesn't matter. A church you know, may look good on the outside, but inside be totally adrift. It's cold and it's dark. And that doesn't necessarily happen suddenly, like a, a sinkhole you know, opens up under it and it falls in. It quite often happens gradually and subtly over time as that love for Christ begins to wane and drift and ultimately disappear. As we begin to drift away from something crucial and that crucial core center is the gospel. It's the gospel that is the red hot center of our love. That's what fuels that love, our understanding of the gospel. And so the, the gospel rightly relished generates in us heat and it gives off light. And again, if you've been married, think about your experience in, in, in marriage or think about your experience with the gospel and conversion. When you first got married, you were ignorant. You didn't know anything about being married. But all you knew was that you were in love and you wanted to tell everybody about it. Think about your experience with the gospel of God's grace. When you were first converted, you didn't know, you didn't have a, a, a well thought through doctrinal statement. You didn't understand the, maybe some deep theological truths. All you knew was that Jesus died for you and you loved him for it and you wanted to tell everybody about it. But as we drift over time away from the gospel, we forget that. We forget our need for grace. We, we start to think that, that we've arrived. We, we start to think that we're better than others or that we've always been like this. You can tell that you're drifting when the cross of Jesus moves from the forefront of your vision to the rear of your heart. 
That's how you know that you've drifted. And that, I think, is what Jesus is addressing here. And so verse 7, he who has an ear, she who has an ear, if the shoe fits, wear it. And so we ask the question, where are we? Where are you today? Is there more right than there is heat and light? Look, I think this is a real danger in the afterwash of, of this lockdown, right? I mean, we, we, we know the stuff, but maybe our passion has drifted such that the love just isn't there. It's not what it used to be. The love for God, the love for Christ, the love for his gathered people. Maybe it's waning and we've drifted. It's hard to get back, but it's not impossible. And Jesus is going to show us how to do that. He's going to call them. He's going to call others that have ears that want to hear what the Spirit is saying. He's calling us to recalibrate by remembering and repenting. Jesus calls them and us to continually engage in this act of remembering in verse 5. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. This is a a self-appraisal that we are regularly to kind of go through to engage in. It's this act of honest reflection where we stop and we think, okay, is my heart cold to Christ? Am I in awe of the gospel of God's grace that saved me and that is transforming me? Or do I feel as though I've moved past it? Is there a a religious shell that has covered over my heart so that there's no affection anymore for the beauty of the gospel? Do I prize Jesus in my heart? Really? Do I prize him? Now, listen, Jesus isn't saying here that if you're not thinking about him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year that there's a problem. That's not how affections work. Affections run in the background, like a computer operating system. They, they form the foundation of, of everything. Like, I love Mandy, but, but I, don't, I don't spend every minute of every hour of every day of every year thinking about my love for Mandy. There's a pattern and a rhythm to the way that I think about her there wasn't then there would be a problem and I think this is what Jesus is saying it's not okay you've got to you've got to think about him every minute of every day but there's an underlying foundation in which my heart sings when I think about my savior and so what is in our hearts what is your temperature for Jesus right now. And let me just give you a sign, a way that you can know or that you can uh, have a clue of what your temperature is for Jesus. What is your temperature for God's people? Do you love God's people? John, again, in 1 John chapter 3 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, but then listen, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The way we feel about one another gives us an indication of how much we truly love and treasure Christ. And so if upon engaging in this self-appraising act of reflection, if you find that you're coming up short on heat and light, Jesus says, repent. Turn back. Turn, turn, uh, turn back. Uh, and innocently repenting is not an abstract thing. Repenting doesn't mean, okay, God, I repent. All is well. No, repentance is active. And that's why Jesus says, repent and do the works you did at first. Think back to when you were converted and the passion that stirred in your heart. What did you do as a result of that? Well, I bet you spent time reading God's Word. Maybe you couldn't get enough of it. You surprised yourself maybe at how much you longed to read actual words on a page. But see, that's what love for Christ did in you. It caused you to want to devour his word. It caused you to want to spend time with him in prayer. It caused you to want to be around his people, to be encouraging and to be encouraged among his people. See, that's what you do when your heart burns with love. Those are the marks of a heart that is blown away by the gospel. And so if that doesn't characterize the current state of your heart, praise God's grace. Because he says it can again. Repent. And go back to doing what you did before. Get back to his word. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, he prays often, God, revive my heart through your word. This is what the word of God does. It shows us who Christ is. It stirs our heart. And there's a love that results from that we can't contain. He says, repent. And do what you did at first. Turn to Jesus afresh and ask him to stoke the embers of your heart. And he will. To fan into flame what once burned bright. And he'll do it. If we boil this down, recalibrating our hearts is about casting ourselves anew on Jesus and the cross. Casting our gaze afresh on the truth of the gospel. That's what generates heat and light, the kind of heat and light that Jesus is after here. And this is where true orthodoxy leads us. And so look, if your love is dull, pray that God would revive your hearts through his word. In verse seven at the end, victory doesn't come to those who start And then fizzle away. Victory comes to those who endure. The promise of eternity, the promise of life, of the life to come, comes to those who conquer, who endure with an enduring faith. He says, The one to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what's in your heart this morning? 
This is our occupational hazard as Christians, by the way. That over time, we get consumed with what is right so much that, it, that we drift away from the love that it generated in our hearts once. So let's recalibrate our hearts and repent if we've drifted. Well, I heard a story not long ago about a couple named Glenda and Robert Lennon. And they were out on their fishing boat in the Gulf of Mexico, just off of the coast of Florida. And they were four miles out uh, doing some fishing, different things like that. It was just the two of them. And Glenda decided, I want to uh, go for a swim. And so she, she jumped in. She had her mask and snorkel. She was you know, trying to do some spear fishing there in the clear waters. And all of a sudden, she came up out of the water, and she looked, and she realized that she was about 50 meters away from the boat. And not only that, she was being kind of taken out away from the boat by the, the current. And so she called out to her husband, who was still on the boat, Robert. And Robert, by mistake, Robert jumped in after her and started swimming towards her. And by the time he caught up to her, they realized that they were now in a heap of trouble because the current was still pulling them away from the boat. And now there was a vast separation. And they knew uh, that while Robert was a champion swimmer, Glenda was not. And so she would not be able to swim back all the way to the boat against the current. He might be able to, but he wouldn't be able to take her with him. And so they made the decision that he was going to swim as hard as he could back to the boat, hoping that eventually the current would turn and then he would be able to get to the boat to then come and rescue her. He swam for six hours against the current before it finally turned. The boat was apparently bobbing up and down in and out of view on the horizon. It was so far away. He swam for six hours back to the boat. He eventually made it back to the boat, got in the boat, and, of course, immediately started looking for Glenda. He searched for the rest of the night till it got dark. He got some other boats with him to try to help him look, and he couldn't find her. And so imagine, he made the decision, there's nothing else that we can do. So he went back to shore. He woke up the next morning, and the, the owner of the hotel that they were staying at said, you know what? Let's just give it one more try. And they went out again, and they found Glenda, and she was 20 miles offshore. She had been treading water all night, waiting. Listen, if your love has drifted, if you've kind of looked up all of a sudden and realized, that you know what, I am a long way away from the love that I once had. Listen, it's not too late. Jesus says, turn back. Do the things that you did at first. And let me rekindle that love, that passion, and that zeal. So if that's you today, there's hope. There's hope. Remember, repent, and return. And listen, if you've never come to the place where you've trusted in Jesus, you've never received that gift of life that he offers through faith and faith alone, maybe today would be the day when you would say yes to him, when you would receive his love for the first time and let him open up your heart 
to the love that he wants to put in you. Let's pray together before Chris leads us in a closing song. Father, we come as your people and we come admitting that we are weak. Admitting, Father, that there are so many things that turn our attention away from what you have accomplished in us through the cross. And so, Father, we recognize that we are prone to drift. And there's a thousand different things that can cause us to drift. But, Father, we recognize that there are times when we wake up, and if we're honest, we have to say to ourselves, look, I just don't feel the same about Christ as I used to. And we know that that has a knock-on effect, that then we don't feel the same about your people. We don't feel the same about the lost, and so on and so forth. Father, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves today. And that in our reflection, that that honesty, if we have drifted, that that would lead us to repenting, to asking forgiveness where we need to ask forgiveness, and to returning to you, to to turning back, doing the things that we did at first. Father, I pray that, that that heat, that passionate love, that that light that desire to see a light shined out into the world around us, that that would return and that we would love you because you first loved us. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We recognize that we are nothing apart from you, that everything we have is because of you. And so we thank you through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.